Mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry have this week declared a national state of emergency for children's mental health. We look at the sobering statistics and challenging solutions. Also this morning, along with the great resignation, comes the great resettling. A large segment of the workforce, especially women, who are reprioritizing their career path and lifestyle in the wake of the pandemic. And in our Throwback Thursday segment this morning, Quackery. Horror stories from the history of the worst ways to cure nearly everything, which also serves as a cautionary tale for modern medicine. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Thursday, October 21st, 2021. If you are old enough to remember the late Paul Harvey and his uh, daily news and commentary segment that we ran on this radio station, we carried on on this radio station for years and years, hundreds of radio stations across the country did. Paul Harvey, legendary radio reporter and commentator. And if you're old enough to remember his daily reports, he used to be very fond of pulling out a story and labeling it as this day's news of most lasting significance. And it was some story about a scientific breakthrough or some major news event that, in his opinion, people would likely be talking about for years to come or something that might be a scientific breakthrough that... One day people would look look back and say, gee, that all started with this. And this is one of those items that were he around today, I think he would definitely label this day's news of most lasting significance may be this. Surgeons in New York have successfully attached a kidney grown in a genetically altered pig into a human patient. And found that the organ worked normally. It is a scientific breakthrough that one day may yield a vast new supply of organs for severely ill patients. More than 100,000 Americans are on an organ transplant list. And roughly 90% of those are waiting for a kidney. Uh, Researchers have long sought to grow organs in pigs that are suitable for transplantations, uh, transplantation into humans. Technologies like cloning and genetic engineering have brought that vision closer to reality in recent years. But testing these experimental organs in humans has presented daunting ethical questions. So surgeons at NYU Langone Health took an astonishing step. With the family's consent, they didn't do this willy-nilly. They sat the family down and said, here's what we want to do. This is why we want to do it. It could lead to life-saving procedures years into the future. They attached the pig's kidney to a brain-dead patient who was being kept alive on a ventilator and then followed the body's response while taking measures of the kidney's function. It was the very first operation of its kind. Now, this report in the New York Times points out that the researchers tracked the results for just 54 hours. Not 54 days, not 54 weeks, 54 hours. 
So many questions remain to be answered about the long-term consequences of such an operation. And they point out that it could be years, if ever, before the procedure is generally available. But it does offer hope to the many thousands of Americans who are waiting for a life-saving transplant of a human heart, lung, liver, kidney, or whatever it might happen to be. This is big, big news here. And definitely this day's news of most lasting significance, if it indeed comes to pass, we can look back to October 21st, 2021, when you first heard about it. Interesting stuff. Speaking of uh, medical stories, saw this on the uh, Newswire. Cigarette smokers who switch to vaping has become a very popular way for tobacco users to kick the habit. Unfortunately, those smokers who switch to vaping are less likely to successfully quit traditional cigarettes compared to those who simply quit using tobacco altogether. University of California researchers add that those who try to quit smoking by vaping are also more likely to relapse compared to those who switch to other combustible tobacco products such as cigars or pipes. The data shows that just 42% of smokers who moved to e-cigarettes were not using traditional cigarettes at least one year or more after making the switch. By comparison, more than 50% of study participants who stopped using tobacco completely We're still not smoking cigarettes one year later, though just over one third relapsed. Interesting. At least this uh, study doesn't uh, indicates that uh, or suggests that uh, uh, smokeless tobacco or uh, uh, e-cigarettes vaping may not be the panacea we think it is. Interesting. Um, Here's something that's kind of interesting, and I guess this has been. Uh, a suggestion on social media, specifically TikTok, putting lemon juice in one's coffee to help you lose weight. Apparently, this is a trend that is taking over TikTok. There is this belief that if you put lemon juice in your coffee, it'll help you lose weight. <clears throat> Sorry. Registered dietitian Aaron Polanski Wade says... Adding lemon into coffee will not promote weight loss, just like drinking lemon water has little impact on body weight. However, drinking more calorie-free beverages, especially warm beverages, can help to increase the feeling of fullness, which may in turn lead to eating smaller portions and weight loss. But it isn't the lemon that is causing the weight loss. So if you have seen that online and wondered, hmm, is that true? Uh, No, it's not. And a couple of other uh, stories here among the first things you need to know this morning as we get your Thursday morning started. Speaking of putting things in your beverages, this might make you think twice before ordering your beverage at a restaurant with ice. A technician who goes by the name the Iceman on TikTok recently posted about inspecting a filthy ice machine in a restaurant in a video He inspects the grimy machine, which has yellow and brown mold around the hinges. So let me tell you something real quick. A lot of times people go to restaurants, they get sick. They think maybe it's food poisoning or the food made them sick. No, he said there's a good chance that it's the ice that got you sick. 
He then opens up the water container in the machine, which has a cloudy film floating on the top and says it is bacterial water. So it's dirty. Uh, TikTokers who viewed the video noted that they had just unlocked a new fear. So maybe the next time you uh, order a drink in a restaurant, say, "Eh, skip the ice. No ice, please. You know, I know a lot of people who don't order ice in their drinks at a restaurant just simply because they don't want. I mean, they want to get the most drink in their cup as they can, as opposed to filling it up with ice. And, you know, a lot of restaurants put a lot of ice in the in the cups and not a whole lot of actual drink. And people see it as a value issue, but uh, might make you uh, look at it as a a health issue. And by the way, speaking of fast food, I found this rather interesting. Have you ever wondered And this also from TikTok? Have you ever wondered what people don't order from McDonald's? Stephen Petula, uh, who works as a supervisor at a McDonald's in Waterford, Ohio, posted a video to TikTok saying customers almost never order hot tea. I didn't even know hot tea was on the menu at McDonald's. But uh, he said that is the least ordered item from the McDonald's menu, hot tea. He says, over the years, a ton of people have asked me what is the least ordered item at any McDonald's. He says, we bought these stores in July, and I have yet to serve one single hot tea. He said he even did not know that we... He said, I didn't know that we sold hot tea until about a month ago. Ironically, though, our most sold item, most sold item, is iced tea. So, there. now you know. Uh, and I would not have guessed that iced tea would be the most sold item either. One uh, TikTok user commented, we sold a hot tea the other day at my McDonald's and no one knew how to make it. <laughs> we had to go to the general manager to help us. <laughs> so uh, anyway, and, and that's uh, a number of other people have uh, suggested that your results may vary in other countries like the UK, for example, probably. Uh, They order a lot more hot tea than certainly in this country, but uh, very interesting stuff. Now you know some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Thursday morning started. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. The WTOL 11 first alert forecast, partly cloudy today with a chance of showers, a high of 68. Partly cloudy tonight, a low of 41. The Finley Rotary Club presented its 2021 Golden Apple Awards to three area teachers for their teaching excellence. The winner at the middle school level was Ray Wolf, the choir director, musical director, and assistant band director at Liberty Benton. I'm just lucky to have received such a great education in Hancock County. I went to Van Buren K-12 and had some amazing teachers at Van Buren, including my music teachers. Ray says his favorite part of the job is watching kids grow into amazing people. The winner at the elementary level was Macy Wenner of Wilson Vance. And at the high school level, Mark Lauks, chemistry teacher at Findlay High School. Pending legislation calls for fines, community service, and possible time behind bars for assaulting sports officials in Ohio. The Senate Judiciary Committee is considering a bill that would make such attacks a first-degree misdemeanor with an automatic fine of $1,500 and 40 hours of community service. The bill also says a second conviction could lead to a felony charge. Legislation sponsor Representative Bill Romer is a Republican from Richfield in northeastern Ohio and a longtime youth baseball coach. Romer says more than two of every three sports officials quit during their first three years because of spectator abuse. Daniel Barnett, ONN News.
A project to raise two Findlay intersections and a portion of roadway so they no longer flood is nearing completion. The intersection of East Main Cross Street and East Street closed at the end of July. In June, Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway closed for the first half of the project that ties into Blanchard Street. The city engineer's office says the project will ensure that the intersections no longer flood and emergency vehicles will still be able to utilize the roadway during heavy rain events. The project is expected to be finished by the end of the first week of November, if not sooner. Get more on our website. Cleveland Browns quarterback Baker Mayfield will not start in the Thursday night football game against the Denver Broncos. Mayfield is dealing with a shoulder injury sustained in week two that was further injured in Sunday's loss against the Arizona Cardinals. Backup quarterback Case Keenum will start in tonight's game. Get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. Matt Demchek with 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. We're starting to see now some of the unintended consequences of the drastic measures that were taken over the course of the past year to curb the spread of COVID-19. For example, between March and October of 2020, the percentage of ER visits for children with mental health emergencies was up 24% for kids ages 5 to 11 and 31% for those between the ages of 12 and 17, further exacerbating what was already the second leading cause of death for youth in the U.S., suicide. The American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry have this week declared a national state of emergency for children's mental health. And joining us is Dr. Warren Y.K. Ng, President-Elect of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. To be clear, Dr. Ng, this was already a crisis. Why a national state of emergency for children's mental health now? Thank you, Chris, and thank you for having me this is so important, and that's why child and adolescent psychiatrists, pediatricians, as well as children's hospitals have come together to really raise the alarm and sound it in terms of children's mental health as a crisis, as a priority. As you mentioned, you know, you shared some very sobering statistics, but statistics don't tell the story of real lives of children and adolescents and their families suffering within the community. And so that's why it's so important that we come together and acknowledge the fact that there is a crisis and that we're at a tipping point. And if we don't respond now, these children and adolescents, the impact is going to be felt much farther than the actual pandemic. And it's important for us to be able to join together, prioritize the issues, as well as act now to really change the course. Because for the children and adolescents currently impacted, they need help. And they need help now. So really urging on our policymakers to really act as well as to find resources to prioritize these issues, as well as the fact that there is no time to waste when it comes to children and adolescents. Was this something that should have been anticipated? I can hear some people saying, hey, I told you so. The cure for the pandemic was worse than the disease. Is that what we're dealing with here? Well, I think we definitely learned a lot from the pandemic and one of the things that we've learned is how important we are to one another, but also how important our mental health and well-being is. Um, so I think one of the things that we're seeing is the fact that even before the pandemic, one in five children and adolescents had a mental health condition. And that's sobering when you think about one in five, because that's essentially all of us. None of us are unaffected by that. But at the same time, when we have the experience of 
suicides being the second leading cause of death for young people aged 10 to 24, that's very alarming. And that was before the pandemic. Right. So if you think about who we're walking into and then all of the things that the pandemic challenged us with, then you can imagine that the situation could only be worse. So one of the things that we're seeing every single day is increasing rates of depression, anxiety, trauma, as well as suicidality. And I think those things are very concerning, particularly when we've seen, as you shared, the statistics of, can you imagine, five to 11-year-olds, there's a 24% increase of those children coming into our emergency rooms in crisis. And that's really sobering, not only for that child, but for their families that care about them. Yeah. So I think one of the things that we're seeing on top of all of the concerns is really this cumulative effect on our children and adolescents. Um, And I think that the other statistic, which is very alarming, is the fact that we've had um, 140,000 children and adolescents in this country lose a parent or caregiver during the pandemic. Mm. And when we think about communities of color, 65% of those horrible numbers occurred within communities of color for children of color. So thinking about how we can best address these issues, but also respond to the needs of our children it's really urging our policymakers to prioritize children's mental health and address some of the solutions that can be possible. How so? What what actions are you calling for specifically from policymakers? We are calling for policymakers to prioritize the issues, to join together, and to take action. So part of taking action is making sure that there are appropriate funding resources as well as the infrastructure to deliver comprehensive mental health care for children and adolescents within their communities. Some of the things that we've seen during the pandemic that have been very helpful has been telepsychiatry or telehealth. So how can we expand that, but also in an equitable way to make sure that we're meeting all of the communities that need it the most. The other thing that we can do is really to bring the care to where the kids are at. So whether or not that's in their school, and really expanding and supporting school mental health, as well as partnering with our communities, as well as really bringing in more integrated care within our primary pediatric settings. These are your trusted pediatricians within the family. And so being able to bring the mental health services in coordination with your pediatrician is really important. But there isn't enough of us to go around. So the workforce issues are a significant priority. So how can we increase the number of child and adolescent psychiatrists as well as children mental health professionals? And part of that are through loan repayment programs so that if you love doing the work, you should definitely be able to find a way to do it um, and to have the support and acknowledgement that this is really a priority. The other things that we also want to address are really suicide prevention programs. Mm -hmm. So when suicide is the second leading cause of death, you definitely want to try to address getting kids to the help that they need earlier um, before it gets to a point where they're at that state of suicide or thinking about it. As as important as those resources would be, policymakers are not the ones on the front lines, nor is this going to happen overnight. So how can those who are on the front lines, and we're talking parents, teachers, coaches, uh, any other adults in a child's life, how can they help support uh, a children's mental health? Because again, we don't have time to wait. This is a crisis now. This is a crisis now, and that's exactly the point. And part of it is really ha- 
feeling like you have the agency as well as the power to make a difference. And so part of that is parents, teachers, coaches, and any adult within a child's life. Part of what's really important is making sure that the children that you know and are in your life are okay. So part of it is really listening, looking, as well as asking them, checking in. How are you doing? Really trying to understand what's going on for them and to be able to understand that there is help. So reaching out to your pediatrician, reaching out to your child and adolescent psychiatrist or children's mental health provider or your school if there is more support that you need. And it's really working in coalition so that we can push our policymakers to prioritize this so that we can get the help that we need. There's short-term solutions and there's long-term solutions and we need to do both of those and everything in between. And there are places where you can also get additional information. There's a wonderful website, the healthychildren.org website, as well as the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry's website, aacap.org is another resource. And really informing yourselves, but most importantly, check in on your children and also access that network of support that may exist within your community with your pediatrician's child analysis, psychiatrist, and children's mental health provider. And of course, recognizing that this is, in fact, a crisis. Again, uh, Dr. Warren Y.K. Ng, president-elect of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. They, along with the American Academy of Pediatrics, declaring a national state of emergency for children's mental health. Real quickly, mention again the uh, website where folks can get more information, more resources. Definitely. So it's healthychildren.org. Thank you. So you may remember earlier in the week we were talking about the great resignation. Uh, the number of people who are just up and leaving their jobs in the wake of the pandemic, sort of reevaluating what they want to do in life. And along with that comes something we could call the great resettling, which is a large segment of the workforce, especially women uh, who are repires, not necessarily leaving the workforce altogether, but reprioritizing their career path and their lifestyle in the wake of all that has happened. And uh, the folks at the uh, Finley Hancock County Chamber uh, have a uh, uh, have a lunch and learn event coming up next week. Uh, all about this. Emily Young is with us uh, from the uh, chamber, and thanks very much for dropping by. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, this really grabbed my attention because, again, we were just talking about this, and I suppose it's not uh, surprising that there are so many people who are sort of reevaluating, given everything, because this has been a major life event for so many people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with COVID nineteen it forced everyone to reprioritize and really kind of look at what they were doing, you know, whether it was their job or, you know, their lifestyle in general. And so a lot of people's priorities have shifted. And focusing on what is really important. And, and it's it's not uncommon, and we probably should have seen it coming because, you know, whenever we have a big life event, a death of a parent, I remember when my mom died a few years ago, my dad now is in declining health, and it's made me think about, you know, what do I want to do with uh, with my life and, you know, and all the So th- this is not an uncommon phenomenon, but the pandemic is something that affected everybody exactly. all at once. Yeah. So hence the big resettling. Yeah, I mean, it's really rare, obviously. You know, we've all lived through a pandemic, which is not yeah. common, and right. but we've all lived through that. And so it's very rare that we all go through the exact same thing. So 
you know, we've really seen that shift. And uh, again, this is this great resettling where uh, people not necessarily ready or able to leave the workforce entirely, but are kind of reprioritizing and looking for something different. As we said, this is something that is seems to be impacting women in the workforce prime, uh, particularly. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, we all know that, um, you know, if you were suddenly working from home, if you're a parent, that means you were teaching and you were also parenting and you were also working. And so I think for a lot of women in particular, it um, really just added to that of, yeah. you know, really looking at what's important to you and what what you want out of your life going forward. Yeah. Being uh, your child's full-time teacher may not be a long-term thing or not, may not be a permanent thing, but parenting is right. And yeah. That so, one, that one's permanent. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it, it is only stands to reason that women, especially will be looking at this. And so your lunch and learn is going to focus on, you know, helping women with some advice on, on how to sort through all of this, right? Yeah. So it's part of our, um, our women's mentoring uh, connection. And we do these about quarterly um, throughout the year. Um, and it's actually it's actually not a lunch and learn. <laughs> it's uh, first thing in the morning on Tuesday, this coming Tuesday at 8 a.m. And okay. we're doing it via Zoom. You know, we used to uh, meet in person, but obviously with COVID, we sure. had to shift a little bit. Right. So right now we're meeting on Zoom. And, um, you know, we always pick one topic. And, you know, it used to be things like, you know, feeling confident in the workplace, asking for a raise, you know, making sure you're heard at the, the board table, you know, all of those kinds of things, which are all still really important, important, right? But in light of COVID, uh, we really looked at our programming and wanted this particular one to focus on, um, on prioritizing your life. And so, you know, earlier this year, we've done um, different uh, topics like uh, personal resilience, um, you know, making sure that you have things that are bringing you joy in your life. Um, the benefits of having a bucket list is, so one, is another one. Dancing around all of this. Mm-hmm. And now this coming week, you're actually going to tackle this issue head on. Yeah. So now we, we're talking about the, we're calling it the great resettling. Um, not quite the great resignation, but you know, maybe you're shifting into something a little bit new. And so we've got a great panel of women who are all local to Hancock County who over the last few years, not necessarily just due to COVID, but maybe they've retired or they've jumped into a new career path or, you know, just something major so has shifted. people have been there, done that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so we'll just be on Zoom chatting. Um, we've got um, Jennifer Schwartzlander from, she's the direct, deputy director of the Adamus board. She's going to be our facilitator. So she'll kind of lead the panel through some questions about those life changes that they've made. Um, and hopefully we'll all get some some great, you know, little little nuggets of info. And then who else will be a part of this? Yeah. So um, we've got four panelists and we always um, try to um, try to make it as intergenerational as possible. So, you know, different different jobs, uh, different different ages, just so we get a variety of perspectives. So mm-hmm. we've got Maggie Brown, who's with the Family Resource Center. Shannon George is an owner and operator of Buckeye Family Farms. Cassie Turner is with the Community Foundation. And then Karen Bishop is actually recently retired within the last year, and she's a retired nurse. Okay. So, so we've got a great panel. And yeah, really uh, a lot of uh, similar experiences. Mm-hmm. And uh, certainly those uh, who have uh, a lot of personal experience, especially uh, through this pandemic uh, yeah. as well. And I would imagine, you know, again, this is geared toward women. Are, are men like uh, prohibited? I wouldn't this? say they're prohibited. I mean, because you I, know, I'm Doug thinking... Jenkins works in our office and he comes to our women's <laughs> programs sometimes. Well, I, I have my own thoughts 
about Doug, but no, no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, but uh, because I can imagine, I mean, this is in some cases, uh, men are, are dealing with many of these same issues and can probably get take something away from this as well. Yeah, so. I mean, absolutely. It's it's not just a problem specific to women, um, but I definitely know focused on women. Yeah, so. it will definitely be focused on women. But like we said, you know, I'm sure there would be some takeaways for anyone really. Um, we just really value our women's programming as well. Just that, you know, yeah. when we've been in person, especially, it just creates sure. a really, really open environment for women mm-hmm. to kind of talk freely and right. get, get that support from so, each other. So how do people sign up for this? So they can go to finleyhancockchamber.com slash women's leadership. Or if you just go to finleyhancockchamber.com, click on the events calendar, you'll see it. It's coming up this Tuesday, 8 a.m. on Zoom. Once you register, you'll get the Zoom link in your email and you can sign on. And then will there be an opportunity for people to sort of ask questions uh, themselves and yeah, participate abs- in the discussion? Definitely. So, you know, we do have our panelists and they'll be doing the most of the most of the, the speaking and everything. But uh, myself and uh, our director, Dion Neubauer, and um, our friend Julie Brown, we'll all be uh, monitoring the chat and everything. So if someone's watching and they have a question or a really pertinent like story, you know, something that was really related to them and their story... Uh, you know, they can jump in and they're welcome to share as well. Because, you know, it really, our, the whole program thrives on that back and forth and conversation. Yeah, it, it really should be a fascinating event. And again, it is coming up on Tuesday, Tuesday? right? Tuesday mm-hmm. of next week. Yep, and October 26th. Bright and early at uh, 8 a.m. Exactly. We've got the link up at our webpage at goodmornings.net if you want to learn more about the great resettling. And maybe uh, it is something that you uh, have in the back of your mind as well. Uh, Emily Young, the Finley Hancock County Chamber of Commerce, thanks very much for dropping by. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. A night of drinking turned ugly for a Michigan couple when a woman was arrested for striking a security guard with a can of Red Bull and her boyfriend who later drove to the police station to try and bail her out, um, (laughs) drove to the police station on a flat tire while equally drunk. (laughs) This was just bad all the way around. The security employee at a restaurant told police that workers tried to remove a 25-year-old Dearborn woman and a 26-year-old Detroit man after receiving multiple complaints that they were smoking inside the restaurant, which is not permitted. When workers tried to remove the couple, the woman shoved a security guard and struck him in the face with a can of Red Bull. Uh, Police said the woman bit a different security employee on the forearm. She was arrested on suspicion of aggravated assault and assault and battery. The male half of the duo later showed up at the police station to bail his girlfriend out. Um where reportedly cops told him his front passenger side tire was flat and that the rim was bent. He had driven to the police station on a flat tire. He denied driving the vehicle, but police confirmed via security footage that he arrived alone. He was also arrested and charged with operating a motor vehicle while under the influence of alcohol and driving with a suspended license, just to make things more interesting. Sometimes the criminals just make it too easy. You know, that's... By the way, sometimes uh, being inebriated will keep you out of jail, apparently. Erica Carter 
of McKeesport, Pennsylvania, says she recently heard a big boom and then breaking glass in the middle of the night. When she got up to investigate, she found a strange man in her home uh, carrying a piece of her outdoor fence. (laughs) It broken into her home with a piece of her fence. Um, Ms. Carter says she feels police did not do anything to address the situation. She claims when the cops arrived, she called 911, obviously. When cops arrived, she asked them if they were going to arrest the intruder. And they allegedly, according to her, they allegedly said, no, we can't arrest him. He's too drunk. The jail won't take him. Really? What is? I thought that was kind of the point. If you were, uh, but they said we can't arrest him. He's too drunk. The jail won't take him. Police, for their part, have not issued any statement about the incident as of yet. So stay tuned on that story. That's weird. I've never heard of being too drunk keeping you out of jail. But a uh, couple of, uh, well, a, a couple of. Uh, Stories of of people annoying their neighbors. This one with a Halloween bent. And you got to wonder just how far is too far when it comes to decorating for Halloween. A man in Dallas has a very gory Halloween display in his front yard. And he keeps adding to it, despite the fact that neighbors have called police many times over the past several years. Stephen Novak's new additions this year to his Halloween display in his front yard include a wood chipper blood fountain (laughs) and 55-gallon drums overflowing with shredded party guests. While the display has wowed the Internet, his neighbors are less enthused. He says police have been called to his place multiple times. He always welcomes them to come out and take selfies with his display. Novak tells uh, local news reporters, anyone who doesn't look at this and crack up, there's got to be something wrong with them. Okay. How about this? This would uh, certainly generate some attention from your from your neighbors. A man in the UK has a bush in his front yard that looks like a hand giving the middle finger to his neighbors. <laughs> You know how they trim, like at amusement parks and uh, you know zoos and things like that. They they uh, trim the shrubbery in the shape of uh, animals or cartoon characters or whatever. Well, this guy has a ten foot tall, ten foot tall hedge that for nearly twenty years he has pruned to get revenge on drinkers at the pub across the street who had teased him. But it has since become a local landmark of sorts, and it attracts hundreds of visitors who take photos and post on social media. Richard Jenkins says he has been threatened with legal action after a neighbor complained about the uh, middle finger shrub. He said he has even had a visit from police who suggest he should cut it into the shape of a fist. And if he doesn't, he could possibly face a fine. But Mr. Jenkins has remained defiant. And locals who love the hedge have even launched a Save the Wharton Bush campaign. <laughs> Alrighty then. And uh, finally, in the uh, broken news this morning, this is a crazy story from the International Files. Saudi Arabia 
is going to try to outdo the extreme entertainment attractions that Dubai offers by creating a massive new theme park, an extreme park, as they call it. The Arabic Kingdom announced plans for a new development called The Rig to open in 2025. And I would think this is such a Middle Eastern thing. They are developing or they are converting an oil rig into a massive 150,000 square foot park and theme park and resort located in the Arabian Gulf. (laughs) Converting an old oil rig into a resort. It is all part of Saudi Arabia's strategy to launch as a major tourism destination. With funding from the nation's public investment fund, the rig will offer up three hotels, including one ultra-luxury option and 11 restaurants, all connected by bridges across the platform. There will be roller coaster rides and extreme adventure sports like diving and bungee jumping as well. Well, okay, I guess. I don't know, it's not something... Would you visit? I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. There you go. Uh, That is uh, today's broken news report. This update on the odd and unusual side of the news. It is certainly that. Brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. It's the most frightening time of the year. Join WFIN for live coverage of the 2021 Cops and Kids Finley Halloween Parade. Our broadcast begins Tuesday night at 7. Parade coverage on WFIN presented by VisitFinley.com and brought to you in part by Sweet Frog Premium Frozen Yogurt. The Halloween Parade is live on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com and 95.5 FM. Time now for your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. What is the one color you should never wear to a job interview? The answer, orange. Now, I know it's classic this time of year particularly, but the career experts at snagajob.com say research over the last 50 years has helped us to understand that 75% of a face-to-face conversation is non-verbal, and while words are used primarily to convey information, body language, facial expressions, and yes, personal presentation are used to evaluate interpersonal attitudes and trust. And orange can unintentionally communicate that you are an attention-seeking, overconfident candidate. And they're not the only ones who say this. A career builder survey of nearly 2,100 hiring managers and human resource professionals backs this up. Uh, These HR managers and uh, so on across several industries were polled and asked this question. And they agree orange is at the top of the list of the worst color to wear to a job interview 25 percent of employers agreed it was a no-no one in four put it right at the top now that's not saying that they would never hire someone who wore orange to a job interview but you are not doing yourself any favors by doing so so next time you were interviewing for a job 
plan out your wardrobe carefully and do not wear orange. The problem is with this story here is it does not say what the right colors are to wear. <laughs> I don't know. Apparently, it's anything but orange is the uh, is the message. Uh, but I, I unfortunately don't have the uh, answer to the question of what's the best, because that's the next logical question. What's the best color to wear? And <laughs> unfortunately, I don't have the answer to that one. So our Throwback Thursday segment this morning, this is kind of, you know how the coronavirus vaccines have become a flashpoint of controversy. Uh, There are a lot of people out there that don't trust, just don't trust the science behind it. And I find that confusing because we often talk about the miracles of modern medicine, and it really is truly amazing what doctors can do these days with life-saving procedures and treatments and medicines and so on so it's kind of ironic that people don't seem to trust the science when it comes to this Uh, but there was a time when it was very prudent to be skeptical of medicine Uh, the field of medicine in fact has a very dark and twisted history as examined in the book quackery a brief history of the worst ways to cure everything Back in October of 2017, we spoke with co-author Dr. Lydia Kang, herself an internal medicine specialist. Dr. Kang, where did the idea of this book come from? Well, uh, Nate and I uh, knew that at some point in time we wanted to write a book together. He's a journalist and a friend, and I'm a physician, and I write fiction. And um, he came up with the idea, like, hey, how about we explore a little bit of this quack medicine stuff, like in, in the history? And he and I both had an understanding of some of the things that a lot of people have heard of, like, um, oh, lobotomies are bad, and right. oh, did you know that Coca-Cola once had cocaine? Sure. So we started to look into it a little bit and realized there was a huge treasure trove of historical stuff that was just unbelievable. So we decided that we would put it into a book in a way that people could read it um, by um, treatment by treatment. So there's an, you know, an arsenic chapter and a gold chapter and a radioactivity chapter, and it was incredibly fun to research, but we found a lot of stuff that we just couldn't believe. And, and it is amazing. I mean, obviously some of this stuff, and you go into things like the, uh, uh, the very crude forms of early surgery, and obviously... Uh, by today's comparison, it, it just uh, seems barbaric. But at the time, uh, these were uh, cutting-edge uh, uh, medical practices, and they were necessary to get us to where we are today. So in some cases, when you look through the historical lens, uh, it, it may give you a bit of a skewed picture. Absolutely. I mean, um, boy, we are sure are lucky today. You know, in the United States, surgery is this, uh, it's just done so incredibly well. We have anesthesia, so we don't feel anything. We have, you know, aseptic techniques, so we don't get infections during surgery, and our surgeons are trained incredibly well. Um, back then, you know, doing something like, say, an amputation, it was just this horrible, horrible thing. Yeah. They didn't have anesthesia. They had to hold the person down. And because the person was usually screaming and, you know, um, and in a lot of pain, they had to do it as fast as possible. And in the process of sawing someone's leg off, 
Sometimes they cut people's fingers off who were holding the leg down. Sometimes the patient died anyway, and it was just awful. Yeah, so there are some things that, again, when you look at it in context, it is what it is, and and, these were things that were developed with the best of intentions. And then you look at some others, and you think, did anyone really at one point take some of this stuff seriously? And apparently they did. Oh, yes. Using mercury, for example, as a way to treat pretty much everything that was off in a person um, it was used so much. And, and, you know, probably closer to like the late 1800s, people started to question, like, maybe this isn't such a good idea. I think people aren't doing so well with this. But when everybody's using the same treatment and it's the only thing that you have to go to, bloodletting, leeches, you know, um, then that's what everybody thought was it was an okay thing. So. Yeah. Nobody batted an eye at drinking arsenic tonics or, you know, taking strychnine for energy. It was just a thing that was done, and everybody was okay with it for a while. Now, again, you kind of have to make the distinction uh, between those uh, legitimate, what were at the time legitimate medical procedures, and then uh, certainly in the early days of medicine, there were quacks. I mean, there were genuine quacks who were out there pushing potions, tonics, whatever, that they had to have known were not good for anything. They were, you know, some of this came down to uh, just some clever marketing. That's definitely true. I mean, a good portion of the book is about the history of um, these treatments that, at the time, their intentions were absolutely very good. I mean, they were really trying to heal people. They were trying to find ways to cure these terrible infectious diseases. And they weren't trying to hurt people, um, so they weren't trying to fool people. They weren't like the, the quacks that we think of as trying to, you know, uh, sell fraudulent things or trying to really make a hard buck off of some desperate people. Um, back then, there was a lot of good intention. But throughout, you know, peppered throughout the book are these other stories of people who um, were just absolute charlatans. Um, yeah. You look throughout uh, throughout history, even those... Uh, ideas and procedures and and medicines, uh, we use that term loosely, uh, that were uh, presented out there with the best of intentions, really there was no testing, no studies on, on the efficacy of, uh, of these treatments and such. You know, when, did, when did that start to change? The Pure Food and Drug Act was passed in 1906, and then we had the FDA trying to work hard to enforce the rules like by the 1930s, And I think it wasn't until the 1960s that they added some more rules and regulations to actually how science studies should be done. So it took a while for um, a lot of these things to get straightened out about, well, how are we going to study this and what's the best way to do it and um, how are we going to make sure that people aren't um, completely biased when they're writing these articles. Mm -hmm. So it's been a long journey. And even now, it's still a problem. I mean, if you look at some super fancy, trendy, um, you know, diet, pill and you go on their website a lot of times you know it'll say you know has been studied in x y and z and you look up the studies and they're terrible studies you know but lay public might not realize they're terrible studies but we do so the problem still is really there yeah and that that was one of the things that i thought was interesting and a number of the uh, reviews point this out that not only is this uh, interesting and in some cases disturbing it actually, there is a lesson to be learned, and there is a takeaway that is applicable even today. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I think one of the hallmarks is that if you, you know, if something is being pushed really hard with marketing, lots and lots of marketing, lots of flashy ads, um, you know, if, if something's very legitimate, it shouldn't have to push that hard to be recognized as legitimate. So 
that kind of a thing always should put up a red flag. And, um, you know, I, I think it's really good to try to speak to, um, to your physician and get an honest opinion from them about what they think is going on. And a lot of people aren't always happy to do that. They're worried about, you know, well, they have their bias about, you know, what's the right kind of medicine. Right, but, right. you know, you need to gather up as much information as you can to be a really well-informed consumer or else you can really get hurt. And that's the scary thing is people can die from these things. Yeah, these that's... people can really get long-lasting problems from them. That is the lesson uh, of the book is this is where it, it kind of takes us when we don't rely on scientific studies and procedures and, you know, this research that is uh, that is going on. This is uh, the result. And by the way, uh, everybody's always uh, heard that uh, – uh, that old saying about the snake oil salesman, you actually have in the book, the snake oil salesman. Yes, we do. And so snake oil, this original snake oil salesman was a real person. Um, he tried to sell snake oil liniment um, in the late 1800s and was just going around saying that this was the best thing ever. But by the time they really tested it to see if it had any snake components in it, it didn't. So he was one of the, uh, um, uh, he was the origin of the word, the snake oil salesman yeah. and snake oil remedies. Um, it was an actual real thing. Yeah. Uh, one of the uh, true quacks in Quackery, a brief history of the worst ways to cure everything. Dr. Lydia Kang is a co-author. And do you have a website in conjunction with the book, by the way, real quick, Willie, we can guide folks to? Oh, absolutely. So you can go to our publisher's website, workman.com, but mm-hmm. you can also find uh, me and Nate on LydiaKang.com and NatePeterson.com. Which we have linked up at our webpage if you want to check it out. And uh, again, even today, we have Snake Oil. We've seen it during the pandemic. We have a modern-day snake oil salesman, as it were. From October of 2017, Dr. Lydia Kang, the co-author of Quackery, A Brief History of the Worst Ways to Cure Everything. And that is our podcast for today. Thanks to all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. And remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage. That is goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow as we finish up the week at a time when more than half of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, banks are levying more fees on their customers than ever before. We have the results of Bankrate's annual study on account charges. It's an eye-opener. Until tomorrow morning, that is good mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. Catch you back here tomorrow.